surely is exciting to be a Christian. Knowing what I know now compared to what once was, I would have it no other way. Well, Brother Harvey asked me back, oh, probably in July, he asked me one time, he said, Brother Snodderly, do you want to preach? And I told Brother Harvey, I always want to preach. It's not because I think I'm anything. It's not because I hunger to be in front of a crowd or anything of that nature. There's just something that wants to preach. But this fall has been a major drain on us. And when we got here this week, I was not ready to preach, in all honesty. And I don't mean that to sound in a bad way. I just was not ready. We were weary. We were tired. My mind somehow was not, it was just in a flurry, if that, if that makes sense. And as the week wore on, yesterday, I would say it was yesterday. I'm not saying anything about the meeting. I think it was, far, it was a far better meeting to me than, than the July meeting and not even shooting at the July meeting. But yesterday, I began to look into the Word of God. And as I was looking, God began to speak yet again. And so I was so grateful and so uh, tonight I'm ready to preach, and I'm, I'm excited about being, I'm always excited about being in the pulpit, but uh, if you'd have called on me too soon this week, I would have been afraid about being in the pulpit, and I'm not saying I'm not fearful, but I have a topic that I believe God's got on my heart this evening. Now, in the, as you're turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, last year I started a study going through the book of Romans. And I wrote a little bit and asked Brother Hammond if he would even do some proofreading for me. And so I started in Romans chapter 1, and as you would see it, the first seven verses are all one sentence. And so I started last year roughly about this time on this study, and I have finally gotten up to verse 5. And so it's been a slow study to me. I, it just seems like every time I turn around, there's something else to that verse that I missed when I was studying it. And I'll have to back up. And so what we will do this evening, we're going to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Now earlier in the week, I spoke some on those same three verses, verses 3 and 4. You'll remember when I spoke on those, uh, especially 3 and 4, I had 5 a little bit, but when I spoke especially on 3 and 4, you'll remember that we noted that there were two according to's speaking of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, speaking of Jesus Christ, it said he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Then in verse 4 it said, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. You'll remember when we looked at those two verses that we pointed at, that this showing us that Jesus Christ was both God and man, both at the same time. He was more than a divine man. He was God and man, both at the same time. Now, you'll remember us looking at that, and that's what we uh, looked at earlier in the week. Now, if you'll stand with me, we'll just read the first seven verses to get us going this evening, and then we'll take off and run as far as God will let us go this evening. The verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, 
for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening. Father, I thank you so very much that word that you've placed in my heart for this evening. I thank you so very much, God, how there's a burning in my soul to somehow convey a topic and to convey these verses that you've got on my heart. And I guess, Lord, there is a fear within me the fear of not being able to convey just exactly what you've put there. And I need you so very desperately this evening. I need your power, Father, to be able to preach the exact wording that you want worded with the exact emphasis is where you want it emphasized. Lord, may I this evening have a good understanding of the spirit of the text. May I be true to it. And Lord, we all need to hear from you. There are folks here this evening whose husbands are in dangerous situations, whose fathers are. There are folks here this evening who have physical problems. Oh, Lord, I don't, have, I don't know them all to name them all. I thank you that I can go to you in prayer, and though I don't know how to word it, that the Holy Spirit, you stand there ready to, to utter those prayers for me as you said you would in Romans 8.25. Knoweth not how to pray as we ought. So, Lord, would you please multiply this message this evening to as many people as there are here. And would you make this message meet every single need? Only you can do it. Would you bind Satan? Would you clear minds? Would you open hearts? And may it all be done to the glory and honor of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. As we look into our text this evening, now I'll just go back over. I preached it back in, in uh, July. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 gives three things that I say were pointing at adjectives. I called it adjectives because I believe it's a description of the Apostle Paul when he said he was a servant, then he said he was called, then he said he was separated. But I hasten to point out in verse 1 that not only did the Apostle Paul say those three things as pointing about himself, but if you look on the other side of that adjective, and in every case you find something pointing at Jesus Christ. In verse 1 it said he was a servant of Jesus Christ. Then it said he was called to be an apostle. That's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it said he was separated 
And then he was separated unto the gospel of God. And then in verse 3, talking of the gospel of God, it says it's concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so on every one of those three adjectives, I'm calling them descriptions of the apostle Paul. He was a servant, he was called, and he was separated. And the point to be had is this, that when he, did, when he was described, his Savior kept coming up in the description. And I hasten to say on that topic, would it not be a wonderful point, Brother Lightsey, for it to come of us, that when people tried to describe who we were, they began describing our God more than us. What a thing, what, a, what, a, what an honor for it to be in that fashion. And then in verse 2, we see verse 2, speaking of the gospel of God, it said which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in verse 2, it was in a parenthetical type of a situation. And in verse 2, we see that the gospel was promised. It was promised afore by the men of God, the prophets. It was promised afore in the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And so we see God speaking of the gospel itself. Then we see in verse 3, and if we recognize that verse 2 is saying that the gospel was promised afore, and now it's speaking in verse 3 of Jesus Christ our Lord, then we must understand that Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son of God, is no more, is no less, excuse me, than the fulfillment of the promise that he spoke of in verse 2. He is that fulfillment. God always lives up to his word. He's always faithful to his word. Now we come to verse 3, and it's where we'll begin picking up. And in verse 3, notice this. It says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let's take these four names or these four titles of, of, uh, of God, and let's look at these just a second. Now first off, speaking of the word son or the title son, the title son, and I'm going to go in depth in for, into it more so, other than, than right now, I'll just say is a title that makes him equal with God the Father. The Son title puts Christ equal with the Father. I'll deal with that a little bit more here in a few minutes. Now, the second uh, title of Jesus Christ in verse 3 is Jesus. Now, go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, and let's see what the Word of God defines the title Jesus as. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And so a very good definition of the title Jesus is Savior. He is our Savior. He saves us from our sins. And somebody wants to highlight Mary. I say this, in this verse it mentions Mary under the heading of she, but it loses sight of Mary for the rest of that verse. And the rest of that verse is talking all Christ, all Jesus, all Jesus. And so the title here of Jesus is the title that uh, gives us a definition of Savior. Now we were talking today, Brother uh, Buhorn and myself, we were talking to a man, and the man had told us that he was saved. And so I quoted him Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I asked him, I said, Do you know that name? He said, Yes, sir. It's the name Jesus. And that's exactly right. There is none other name that can save us. It is not the name in my Southern Baptist church, Baptism. 
When I walked the aisle as an eight-year-old to get saved, and when Nadine walked the aisle as an eight-year-old, there was not one Bible in the Southern Baptist Church that we were in, although two different churches, but they baptized us, took our name, took our address, made us a church member, and not one time did we spend any time on an altar praying to Christ to save us. It was not the name baptism, nor it was the name church member, but it's the name Jesus as we see him as our Savior in Acts chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And what else do we see in him? Crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death. For every man. Boy, we're looking at Jesus is what we see. In John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Then we see another title. In, uh, in verse 3 of Romans chapter 1, we saw the title Son, and I said that's pointing at his equality with God the Father. Then we see the title Jesus, pointing at him as Savior. Then we see the title Christ. And Christ, the definition of it, is the anointed Messiah. Christ, the anointed Messiah. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find here there is an anointing that's going to take place of a young lad, and he's going to be turned into a king, be anointed king, and eventually that would take place. His name is David. And as this anointing, as it's taking place, if you'll look carefully in verse 5 with me, you see three things that happen in verse 5 of this anointing as it takes place. In verse 5 it said, And he said, Peaceably. Now notice here that the word peaceably was in verse 4, the last word. We see it again here in verse 5. And I state this for first off point, that the anointed brings peace. And it's no mistake that when Jesus Christ came, what did the angels say? They said, peace on earth. They said that there would be. And so we see the anointing carrying with it a peace. We see also down about two-thirds of the way through verse 5, and he sanctified Jesse and his sons. And so we see the anointing carrying with it a sanctification. And then thirdly, we see the last word of verse 5. It said, and called them to the sacrifice. And we see the anointing carrying with it a sacrifice. Three things God God allows us to see in this anointing. That there is peace, there is sanctification, and there is sacrifice. And I hasten to say that upon the point of a person's salvation, God establishes, God anoints all of us as children of himself. He births us again, as we heard this morning, into the family of God, and all three of those become a reality. You may be here this evening without Christ. You may be in the midst of turmoil. You recognize you're on a path that's going to drop you off into a devil's hell. You've got things flying every which direction. There may be somebody here this night that you're on the verge of being deployed to Iraq, and you don't like the thoughts any more than I would if I were in your shoes. And all of a sudden this evening, there's some preacher saying that if you'll run to Jesus Christ, he'll establish peace in the the place of all of your turmoil. Boy, what a God. Sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. And God will sanctify your very soul. He'll set you apart first off as one of his own. He'll second sanctify you second off for service of himself. Sanctification and then sacrifice. When it talks in Romans chapter 12, he says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. 
God wants us to live for Him with all that we have. He wants us to be sacrificed in service for Himself. But I hasten to take that thing a step further, that if God ever calls on you to die for Him, then you be willing to die in sacrifice for the cause of Christ as well. And so we see that there were three points in this anointing that took place. Then as well in verse 7, we see about this anointing of David. It said, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth him not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so in the anointing, we've got to understand this, that man looks on an outward looking, and God is looking otherwise than outward. He's looking on the heart. Let me give a for instance, with Christ being the anointed Messiah, and you go to the foot of the cross, and you look at him with his beard plucked. You look at him with his hands and his feet pierced. You look at him with a crown hanging on his head of thorns and blood trickling down his face. All of this for your and my sin. And you look at him and let me tell you that that is the anointed Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He sits on the throne and you will look on the outward appearance and you'll say, absolutely no way. But I'm telling you that if you go farther with us, you go to three days later and you'll find him resurrected. No longer would you find him dead with the blood dried upon him and, and, that, and the scars and the wounds of, of all that he did to take our sins for us. The anointed must not be looked upon on the outward appearance. He must be looked on upon the heart. And secondly... I state on the anointed Messiah that times that it is an impossibility to gauge the movements of God. Who would have anticipated that God would have David anointed? Who would have anticipated that it would be he? The Israelites, when Jesus Christ came, not one of them anticipated he was the true Messiah. Let me rephrase that. The majority of them did not anticipate that he was the true Messiah. And as we think about that, I hasten to take this thing a step further because God wants to anoint us in service for sure. And many times he will speak in our hearts and he'll speak in our lives as he did Nicholas. And when he spoke in Nicholas's heart, he told me earlier this week some of the things that he had wrestled with and how he finally just gave it over to God. And I'm simply saying that on that topic, we others may look at our lives and hear of what God has anointed us to do in service for him. And people will say, my goodness gracious, I don't see how in the world. And we'll look at ourselves and say, I don't see how in the world. And I'm simply trying to say, this, would we please not try to gauge the movements of God, but let him move as he sees fit. He wants to do great and mighty things. I'm convinced of it right here in Tabernacle Baptist Church. I've seen him do great things before. I'm anticipating great things in the future. But if we somehow try to put God in a box and say to ourselves, he will function only as we can understand it, I promise you we have limited God and the anointed will not be fulfilled in service exactly as God wants it to happen. Let me state also for the sake of maybe there's some here this evening and you're sensing a calling upon God of, from God upon your life. Let me state this, that when David was called to come to this time and he would be anointed as king, it is important to notice they had to call him out of the field of work. He was serving God when he was called for a greater serving. 
David was no lazy character. He was busy doing what God would have him to do. Now, let's look at the last title of, out of Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. We have looked at the Son being equal with God. Then we've looked at Jesus being a title of the Savior. Then we've looked at now Christ as Christ was the anointed Messiah. Now let's look at that word Lord. The word Lord, no matter how you twist it, turn it upside down, turn it inside out, it still comes out controller. People don't like the sounds of that. People shoot at Jesus Christ being a controller of my life or their lives if they get saved. Let's see an example in Acts chapter 16 as we go to verse 6. An example of that in Acts chapter 16 as we go to verse 6. What we've got is we've got some men who are preachers and they hunger to preach just like all preachers should hunger to preach. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. And look in verse one, uh, verse 6. It says, now when they had gone throughout Pergia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Notice, and I've got it underlined in my Bible, forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word. Now that's an interesting thing. I just assume God would let us preach anytime we got an urge. Well, God forbid them here. And the point I'm after is, is this, their mouths were following God. That's enough preaching right there. Wouldn't that be something to preach on this evening? But that's not my point I'm after. But I would encourage it greatly that every person in the room that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that your mouth is a follower of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. After they were come, uh, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And in this case, we see their feet were following God. Look in verse 9. And a vision appeared unto Paul, uh, appeared to Paul in the night. The scripture says there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision immediately, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel. As we're following God. There was a vision that God sent to Paul and Paul saw it. And then in verse 10 as well, we notice it as, as well that their wills were following God, that they gathered, they assuredly gathered that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them, what'd they do? They immediately endeavored to go to Macedonia. We see in these six, in these uh, five verses that their mouths were following God, their feet were following God, their minds were following God, and their will was following God. I'm simply saying this, that when God saves us, he becomes our Lord. We're to go where he wants us to go. We're to say what he wants us to say. We're to think what he wants us to think. We're to do what he wants us to do. And if he doesn't want us to do something, we're not to do any of it. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ at the point of salvation dethroned us and stepped to the throne of our lives. And he became our Lord and our master. He became our one that is telling us how to live. You say, Brother Snodderly, have you always been obedient to the voice of the Lord? No. And shame on me. There have been times I have missed the voice of God and not knowing. And shame on me worse. There have been times I knew what he said and I didn't accomplish it. But I'm simply saying this evening that Jesus Christ as Lord is the controller of us. Now, back in Romans chapter 1 and we're in verse 3, I just want to make a point. I don't think I've got anything to preach on this topic. I'm just going to show it to us. That when it says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, when it's talking of the father, Jesus is his son. But when it's talking of us, 
Jesus is our Lord. So we see here that it's got two different angles that it's looking at. It's looking from the Father's angle at Christ and it's looking from man's angle at Christ. And he shows us both angles. Now, when it says concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, of course it's talking of the gospel. Back in verse 1, the gospel of God is concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord. But there are five things from here down through probably verse 5 that are concerning Jesus Christ. Now, I've already hit one this week, but it's concerning him as God and man. He was according to the flesh, and he was according to the spirit of holiness. So that's the first one, and I will not be preaching on that because I preached on that earlier in the week. There is a second thing in verse 4 that we will see that concerns Jesus Christ, and it's the declaration of him. Now, notice the declaration. There are two declarations of Jesus Christ found in verse 4. He is declared to be the Son of God with power... And then he is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. So there are two declarations in verse 4. Now, we begin by looking at the declaration of Jesus Christ as the Son of God with power. I told you a minute ago that I would be back on this topic of Son and show us the equality, how it shows us the equality of him with uh, the Father. Go over to John chapter 5 and let's look at verses 17 and 18. John chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 17 and 18. We're talking about this title of the Son being the Son of God. What does that do? I used to struggle with that. Many times people would say, Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God. Well, that didn't always tell me that he was God. Now, in John chapter 5, look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father, that's the key two words, My Father worketh hitherto, and... I work. Now that's the phrase that he is saying. Now he says he has a father. Who's his father? It's a capital F father. That's God. And he said his father's working and he said and he's working as well. Now look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father, and look at that last phrase, making himself equal with God. When Jesus Christ said he had a father, and his father was a capital F God, and when he said that, these folks interpreted it exactly the way he meant it. He was saying, I am equal with the father. He's got to work, and I've got to work. I am equal with him in authority. I am equal with him in power. And these folks under the heading of envy were angry with him and they sought to kill him. And I say under the heading of envy in Matthew chapter 27, we're not going there. But you'd find out over there that they're behind the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. And it was all. They envied the power of Jesus Christ. They envied his position. He did not say our father like he would have said it in Matthew chapter 6. Teach us to pray. Matthew 6, 9, he said, okay, let me teach us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. That's the way he taught the disciples to pray, remember? But when he's talking here, he did not say, our Father worketh hitherto, and we work. He made it a singular statement. He said, my Father and I. That's the way he stated it here. And these folks were angry with him. 
And just to show the deity of Christ under the heading of Son, under the title of Son, and it's showing that He is equal with Christ, 24 times in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is alluded to as Son of God. And 227 times in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is alluded to as being the Son of God. He is equal, again I say, in authority, and He is equal in power, and He is equal in whatever else you want to think God is. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is every bit of it. He's more than what we think. He is God. There's no doubt about it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. When the father's talking to the son, the father said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so we see him speaking of God. Go to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. When Jesus Christ made reference to himself, they were angry. But in Romans chapter 1, it was saying there that we have a title being Son of God. And it's showing that he is God, as, is God itself. Now I'm in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Who being in the form of God, speaking of Jesus Christ, if you back up the verse 5 and you'll see it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus Christ was equal with God. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus Christ was merely a good prophet. He was merely just a fine man, but he was not God. Don't let anybody tell you that he did. Don't you dare let a Russellite tell you that Jesus Christ is not God. Russellite being a Jehovah Witness, I just despise calling them that, so I call them Russellites. That's their founder, Charles Taz Russell, and they generally get upset when you speak who their founder is, but I'm here to say this evening, the founder of Christianity is Jesus Christ, and I'm right proud to stand up and call his name. I don't have any ashamedness about it whatsoever. And so we see Jesus Christ, he is God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Go over to Psalm chapter 2 and look at verses 11 and 12. Psalm chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We're looking at Jesus Christ being equal with God. In Psalm 2, verse 11 and 12, the scripture says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the, from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So God allowed it to be said, here, kiss the son. Well, who's the son? He's God. He's equal with God and he is God. My pastor told a story one time and he said that the story, uh, or he just spoke of there being a statue of Peter in Rome that many people will come and they will bow down before that statue and they'll pray prayers to that statue and then they'll kiss the big toe of that statue of all things. That he said they kissed the big toe of that statue so much that the toe, the toe wore away. And all of a sudden that statue, its toes missing because the people, and they got a little bit of a, of a wonder, what are we going to do? This place we're supposed to be kissing is no longer there. Now I don't know all about how all that goes, but I know this, this one thing, that we better be bothering to try and find a way to kiss the Son of God rather than to kiss some statue's big toe. We better be finding a way to please God and to, to bring glory to His name. Some we've talked, it was in Tucson, Arizona, and while in Tucson, I met a man. And when meeting this man, I was talking to him on the topic of sin, and I saw a little bit of a glint of a question mark, and I said, do you understand what sin is? And he said, I think so. I said, well, define it for me. He said, well, sin is doing bad things. I said, it's exactly right. What made it bad? He said, because it's wrong. But what makes it wrong? 
And he finally, after two or three things of that nature, he said, Mister, I'm not real sure. I said, well, sin is a breaking of the law of God. Now, see, in Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 through 9, we've got a young man named Joseph. And Joseph has been tempted by Potiphar's wife. But in, in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, it says, There is none greater in this house than I. Joseph's talking. He said, Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. Because thou art his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now you would have thought he had been doing Potiphar dirty, and he would have been. You would have thought he had been doing Potiphar's wife dirty, and he would have been. But the greatest wickedness, if, if he had succumbed to this temptation with Potiphar's wife, was not what he did to Potiphar, not what he did to Potiphar's wife, not what he even did to himself, not what he did to Potiphar's family, but the greatest thing that would have happened had Joseph succumbed to this temptation is that it would have been a sin against God. That's what he's talking about. That's what sin is. It's not what I've done to myself, the drugs, they destroy my body. It's not what they've done to my wife, the alcohol. It makes me do crazy things and beat my wife. It's not what they do to the family or to others. I murdered a man. And it's not that. That's terrible, yes. But the sin, the worst of it, what makes it wrong, what makes it sin, is that it is an against a holy God. And we have broken God's law before sin. There was a Savior. Before guilt, there was grace. Before judgment, there was the blood. Before hell, praise the Lord, there was a heaven. And before death, there was life. And the thing I'm trying to get us to focus in on and to see this evening, that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to that life. He is the life. He's the only way. Now... We've looked at Jesus Christ as he being our Savior, he being the Son of God equal with God. He's been declared with power. We've looked at, uh, I'm trying to get my notes down just bad. Okay, now I'm ready to go back to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, we've seen that he is declared to be the Son of God with power. I said there are five things talking about here in these first five verses about Jesus Christ and concerning Him. And the first thing I said was that He is made according to the flesh. The second thing I said is they make a de- declaration of Jesus Christ. And this declaration of Jesus Christ is first off that He was the Son of God with power and secondly that He is according to the Spirit of holiness. Now that's in verse 4. Now that's my third point. That's part of the declaration but it's also my third point as well. And all I'm going to say is this, is that everything about God deals with holiness. Everything about the Son of, Jesus, uh, Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, deals with holiness. The gospel. You could read this thing like this where it says, according to the spirit of holiness. You could say, verse 1, the gospel of God is according to the spirit of holiness and you would not do any disgrace. The Son of God is according to the Spirit of holiness. Notice it in verse 4 where it says, He is declared to be the Son of God with power. You could say that God's power is according to the Spirit of holiness. And then after, at the end of verse 4 it says, By the resurrection from the dead. And you can say His resurrection was according to the Spirit of holiness. There's not a problem with this. The thing I'm trying to drive home, we could enlarge that if we wanted to take the time. But this is, this is the one thing to grasp, that everything about God is according to the Spirit of holiness. If you this evening are saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you were saved according to the spirit of holiness. You were sanctified to serve Him according to the spirit of holiness. 
And God does not want anything within an individual or within a marriage or within a family or with a church. When he's got his saints like this, it must all be done according to the spirit of holiness. Now the question is, is do you have that spirit? I'm not talking about, I'm talking to the saints right now. You say, yes, I have the spirit of God dwelling within me. I'm talking about the spirit of holiness. Are you living according to that spirit? Do people standing around you sense that there is a spirit of holiness about you? Do they sense that holiness? Or is it one of those things that people at church sense it, but not the family senses it? And shame on us. Shame on us. Our spouses and our children should be able to sense that spirit of holiness. That dad, when he, when he gets a little bit stressed out and, and, and he's not blowing his top all the time, that he's functioning in that spirit of holiness. I believe that this spirit of holiness, that if we are according to that spirit which the Son of God with power was raised from the dead, and it's all according to the spirit of holiness, if he resides within us, that should be our functioning. I don't see room for, for angry, hostile, ill-gotten, stated disputes amongst, amongst the saints in that verse. I didn't say there wasn't room for dis uh, disagreements. I said the way must be according to the spirit of holiness. Now, let's look again. We look back in verse 4 and we see as well, and I've already bumped up against it, that there is the resurrection from the dead. That's the fourth thing that's spoken of about the Son of God. The first thing was he made according to the flesh. The second thing is he is declared to be the Son of God with power. The third thing is he was declared to be according to the spirit of holiness. The fourth thing is that he was resurrected from the dead. And I'm not going to spend any time about that. I'm just going to simply say Jesus Christ is not in the grave anymore. He's resurrected and such shall be the likes of us that know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We will live eternally. Isn't it wonderful to be absent in the body, to be present with the Lord? The minute we take our last breath is to be present with God, but to be immediately without Christ to die is to descend in Luke 16 into the place called hell itself. And in hell, the rich man, the minute he took his last breath, lift up his eyes being in torment. See, it's an immediate thing. But the saints shall be resurrected from the dead. Hallelujah for that. Now let me look at my fifth point this evening. Fifth point concerning Jesus Christ is found in verse 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now the other night I, I touched on that verse just a little bit. And I touched on it from this angle that we have received grace and apostleship. Now there's no such thing as apostles today so I'm going to deal with the grace side of it, okay? We have received grace and notice how it's worded in verse 5. It says... For obedience. Now somebody says, I can't hardly do what God's called on me to do. And, and it's as if when they hear God, they think to themselves that God somehow did not look at them close enough when he made his calling for what their life should be doing. And so I'm here to tell you this evening, no matter, no matter what God's called you to do, he's got enough grace to accomplish it. Look over in Hebrews chapter 11. That's where I took us to the other night. And in verse 8, 
And on this one verse, I'm just stating it again, that is said by faith Abraham when he is called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Now God gives us the grace and then we function in the grace by faith. We see Abraham functioning here by faith. Notice the, 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 uh, the commas, and I pointed this out the other night, but I'm pointing it again. It says there's a comma, we see a comma after Abraham, and then we see a comma after the word inheritance. And in the structure of a sentence of that nature, what that is doing is the main thrust of what's taking place would be around the parentheses and then I suppose how it takes place or what is to take place is within it, the description of it. Okay, so we see outside the parentheses, outside of the commas, we see by faith Abraham and then go to the next comma after it, obeyed. Abraham was obeying by faith. Well, what did he do? When he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance. So he went somewhere. He went by faith. Now, God gives us the grace to accomplish it, and we accomplish it by faith. If you're looking at it from God's side, God's called you to do something, and you're saying, oh my, I don't see how in the world I'm going to be able to accomplish this. Me preach? I could never preach. Me play a piano? No way. Me stand up and sing? Me do something in a Sunday school? I could never do that. I'm saying this more this evening that God's got enough grace to accomplish it in you if you'll go with Him. So from God's side, He's got to send, He sends the grace. But from man's side, by faith, he's trusting in the grace of God to accomplish it in him. And I want to state one more thing, that when God calls us beyond ourselves, and when it's accomplished something that I could never do, and God accomplishes that, God gains glory where we would have been tempted to have gloried. So we see God gaining the glory and we see this grace. Now I'm back in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. The grace in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 is that by whom we have received grace for obedience. Now I've stated this and a man told me this in Bismarck, North Dakota and maybe I've even said it here, I'm not sure. He said, I used to own a bar. He said, when I owned the bar, he said, I put the alcohol out there and people would take that alcohol. And now he's 82 years old. And as an 82-year-old, he's telling me this before saved after about six months of being in church with us. But he's telling me this story. He said, I owned a bar. And he said, and I put the liquor under their nose and took their hard-earned money. And he said, I feel as if I've taken clothing off children's back, food off their table. He said, I've maybe been a part of helping the wife to get beaten, homes break up. And he's telling me why he didn't think he should get saved. And then he turned around and said, and, and then of, of all that mess, he said, whatever they did beyond their families, he said, I feel as if I've participated in that. And so he was saying, I feel like that my one sin of giving them the liquor, I am a participant beyond that with their sin. And so I got to thinking about that, that, that there's a good possibility of that. And then my thought went to this, Brother Dormany. My thought said, if, if uh, Ivan Miller's that way with a bar." What about Adam in the Garden of Eden? And all he did was one sin that you and I would call small. He partook of a fruit that God said not to partake of. And then all of sin throughout the history of mankind has come from that one sin. And if that be the case, then Adam is somehow a participant with all of mankind's sin. And I said to myself, whoa, what a mound of sin that must be on Adam's account. And then my mind ran to God's word in Romans where it said, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
And I hear that word grace and I'm here to say this evening that God's got enough grace to save the lost. We, if we want to say it this way, he's got enough grace to save the worst lost person in this room tonight. He's got enough grace. You don't know what I've done, preacher. I don't have to know. I just know that where your sin begins to multiply, God's grace multiplies right along with it. He's got enough grace. And then when you step in as a saved person, you're hearing the calling of God and you look at your own frailties and your own inadequacies and you say, I can't accomplish it. Look at the enormity of my inadequacies. I say, praise be to God, where your inadequacies and my inadequacies start multiplying, God's grace multiplies right along with it and empowers us to be able to accomplish what he sees fit to accomplish. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 says, we ought to obey God rather than men and we we think to ourselves, well, that's talking about when somebody else tells me to do something and God tells me to do something, and it surely is. But it's also talking about when you yourself tells yourself to do something and God tells you to do it, you ought to obey God rather than your own self. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, notice this one verse, and I'm on the verge of concluding. In verse 5, there are three words that I would notice, or three phrases. And in verse 5 of Romans chapter 1, the first one is grace, or is obedience. The second one is among all nations, and the third one is for his name. The first thing I want us to understand about that word obedience is that that's a, I, I use the word attitude. And so we see the attitude, the attitude is I'm going to obey. And then the second thing is, is the assignment, and it's among all nations. It's not just do it, it's where he tells us to do it, so we have an assignment. Wouldn't it have been an awful thing if they said, we're going to war? And they said, we're going to war in Iraq. And all the troops went to a whole other nation and attacked them for what Iraq is doing. Now, wouldn't that be a terrible thing? I'm talking about obedience is not just enough. Don't stop at the obedience of, I'm going to war. Let's go further to where should we go to war at. Now, it's not just enough as the saints of God to be obedient, but this is talking missions as well. The assignment is, is more than that. The attitude should be obedience, but the assignment is do it among all nations. And then further than that, the authoritative power for why is for his name. We are to be obedient in the face of this entire world among all nations for the name of Christ. Not so somebody can pat somebody on the back and say, what a fine job you've done. No, that's not what it's about. There was a little girl who had a U.S. map. And the United States map got ripped to pieces. And so she thought she had put the map back together. Well, as she began to put the map back together, she began to run into problems because, for whatever the reason in her estimation, Maine simply did not seem to fit next to Montana. It just wasn't working. She had two problems. She had Maine would not sit next to Montana, and she could not get Indiana next to Oregon. And with those two problems, she couldn't figure it out, and she began to get somewhat frustrated. And in her frustrated state, she is ready to just go ahead and trash the map until she remembered something. On the back side of the map was a picture of George Washington. She said, if I can just get this thing turned over and put George Washington together, my map will be right. That was what she came to the conclusion on. 
And so when she got that side done, everything, and then the point I'm after is, is this, is that there are times that you and I will sense that life seems like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's hard to know which piece fits where and how to get this all thing together. But if we can just get our eyes on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and let him have his work, he'll put the puzzle of your and my lives together. Now, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says it this way. Colossians 1, 17, it says, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. By him all, and then Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, it's the last verse and I'm done. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This evening, the thrust on that last point that I'm after is this. <clears throat> Are you living for self or are you living for God? And if you come to the conclusion, really, I'm living for self, then my thrust is, is would you live for God? Would you let him come in? And may he, his, his, his presence put your life together. And this evening, I'm asking then for the, for the lost that you'd come to him and you'd allow him to save your soul and to piece your life together and establish peace where turmoil sits. And for the saints this evening, I say this very thing. That God's got enough grace to accomplish everything he desires in you if you'll just go to him by faith. All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father, we come to you in Jesus' precious name. We need you so desperately, we need you. And Lord, there may be folks here tonight that are without Christ, lost and on their way to a devil's hell. They're looking for help. They're looking for hope. And I plead with you tonight that you'd move upon them. God, would you save their soul? Would you help them not to come because somebody's trying to persuade them, but may they come because you're trying to persuade them and they're succumbing to you and they're giving in to you and submitting to you. Lord, for the saints that are here tonight, be them young or old, if they've heard from you on something, God, may they function with you. May they recognize that, Father, everything's done according to holiness. And if anything deviates into the path of sin to come back to what they would think was a target of holiness, may they recognize it's not of you because your path will always be holy. Father, if there's someone tonight wrestling with the, the will of you for their lives, I plead with you, Lord. Would you help them just to go ahead and by faith trust you to give them the grace to accomplish your will? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.